We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Community Radio, Kilkenny City, keeping you company on 88.7 FM. You're listening to The Big Jump with Orla Kelly and Des Doyle. When everyone else is gone. You're listening to The Big Jump with Orla Kelly and Des Doyle. When everyone else is gone Been all alone, I've seen that clever Take a parachute and go It's gonna have to be some danger Take a parachute and jump You're gonna have to take flight And you are very welcome to The Big Jump this week. It is... Darren Proud and myself, Orla Kelly, presenting this week. Um, we're looking forward to a really good show. For all of you who are uh, baffled and mystified, and I knew I know that includes Morris O'Connor, who's producing for us today, and he'll be up next, about retrofitting your house. Um, grants, insulation, windows, doors, heat pumps. Um, the, the magical key thing in the middle of this are, uh, is the heat pump, which is an air-to-water heat pump. And it's the new low emissions, low energy technology. And we are going to be talking to Justin Ryan shortly. Um, and he knows all about it. He's been working in this area for a long time. And he's a, he's a good, clear talker. So he demystifies, demystifies all of that area. And then um, after the break, we're going to be talking to Claire McDonough, who has had her house in Gorn open to the public for the last few weekends and um, it's an absolute treasure trove. It's an historic house. Foundations go back to much earlier but a lot of it built in the 18th century and she's got an amazing collection of of everything you ever had growing up there. So um, we are going to be talking to Claire after the break. Um, Darren, you with us? I hear you're broadcasting from Nina today. I am in Tipperary, yeah, at the moment. It's been a, I've been here all week. Um, got to enjoy the meteor shower um, here on, uh, I think it was Tuesday night, was it? It was absolutely incredible and uh, really looking forward to today's show. Excellent, yeah. I, I tried to look for a meteor shower last night, but it was just kind of cloudy at that point. Um, so um, we hopefully have Justin on the line. Justin Ryan, are you there? Hello, Justin. Have we got you there? Well, just while we get Justin up online, there was something very interesting that I was just reading about, Darren. So um, it was an article in the Business Post um, about SUVs. And you would have thought with all the EVs um, becoming more popular that SUVs were in decline. But there's actually really depressing news that the SUVs, and there's a huge growth in them from over the last 10 years, from 17% to 39% of the global wow. car market. I know it's depressing, isn't it? And if SUVs, um, it's, I presume it's a fashion lifestyle thing and a lot of it is in um, the emerging countries, you know, of, I know in China and India and countries like that, they would have a massive growth market. But if SUVs were a nation, they would rank seventh in the world for carbon emissions. Oh so e e even the people who did the study, um, were really, really, really surprised at this. So there is a growing demand and they've been the largest increase in CO2s. This, this, they measured from 2010 Hello? to 2018. 
But the thing that's amazing about it, apart from the fact that they're growing, is that the you know the highest contributors to carbon emissions are so the first is power, which you would be imagine it would be yeah. Yeah. The second in the world is SUVs. So that means that everything like so third is heavy industry, fourth are trucks, fifth is aviation, sixth is shipping, and seventh way down the line are all the other cars. So you would think there'd have to be some penalty in there, wouldn't you? That's that's crazy. So, so I I can't believe that it's more than freight. That's um, so yeah. all those trucks on the road are not even are not producing as much as these slightly bigger unnecessary large vehicles or large cars. Correct. Um, Un- unless they don't you carry any more people. Yep. And the whole idea, oh. and they just say it's a it's a fashion thing. It's well heavy industry as well as is is lower down the rankings than them. So that's the entire production of. Of, of steel and everything, all the mining in the world. So, um, yeah, there's going to have to be some, I don't know, carrot stick penalty or just ban the SUV. What do you think? Let's get radical. <laughs> I think, well, I mean, to be honest, it, it, there's part of me that would kind of think, yeah, get rid of the SUV. But the other part of me is thinking, forget the SUV, just go straight for the for petrol, diesel. Just let's, let's be done with that as quickly as possible. And then you get the SUVs and the cars in one. Problems, problem solved. Um, very sense, very simple. Maybe when I say it like that, but no, 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 um, no. Don't worry. An autocracy is be- always simple, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't believe. I cannot believe. So that would mean that SUVs are a faster growing um, car than EVs are. I can't. Yes. I can't believe that. I thought and EVs only, were making. Not- were- yeah. No, we're making no. We're so all of the the good reductions that are being made by EVs and hybrids are being not only negated, but yeah. On to more positive things. We have Justin Ryan on the line. Hello, Justin. How are you? Hi, Orla. How are you? It's very good to talk to you. You're going to be our good news story for today on how we can lower emissions in our house with the magic new air-to-water heat pump. Do you want to tell us what that is? Sure. Um, I suppose... We'll, we'll keep it we'll keep it simple for everyone's benefit so I suppose first thing to say is I suppose everybody has in their home today a version of an air water heat pump which is your, your fridge freezer because it yeah. uses the very same technology so where your fridge freezer that's in your home today yeah. uses uh, I suppose it's powered by electricity an air water heat pump is the same and your fridge freezer works in such a way to keep things inside the fridge cold and then at the back of it it gives off heat so if you can think of a near water heat pump as being a fridge freezer, but only in reverse. And what it does is the heat that's given off at the back of your fridge freezer, we capture that and we use that to heat our homes. And the cold that's inside your fridge freezer, we expel that. And that's just blown away outside by a fan. So that's keeping it very simple. So everybody has this technology in their home today already. And in more and would years, this be this something, sorry for interrupting there, Justin, yeah. would this be something that would replace what most people would have a traditional oil or gas boiler so in all new homes that are being built today yeah. in almost all situations this technology is now going in so in all houses being built today either by say government um, council private sites one-off houses everybody that's heating their homes today pretty much with the odd exception are going for this now technology um, and, do, and is it do they legally have to do that justin or are people just making the right choice 
No. So basically, this is coming from, I suppose, Europe and going back to the, the time of the Kyoto Agreement and, and uh, very much being pushed this way because because it's fueled by electric, electric is seen as being a green, clean fuel, which it is. Now, again, that's a bit tricky in this country because we're not quite there yet and we're not necessarily making our electricity yet in the greenest way. We're getting there, but we're still a bit to go. Um, but 10% of the world's uh, electric today is being produced by say solar and by wind so we're going that direction but at the moment we're still maybe burning heat or burning oil or gas but as time goes on electric I suppose is seen as, as being the replacement for fossil fuel and we'll, we'll progress in making electric and um, making that, that energy cleaner and greener as we go along and if if one was to get so we'll just stick basically with with the um, air to water heat pump at the minute, and it's run by electricity, and we're assuming that that will become cleaner and greener than it is yeah. already. Are there any emissions? No. So basically, I suppose, and, and the way a heat pump works is for every unit of electricity you buy, you get three back. So you get three free units of electricity for every one you purchase. And this is the big attraction for people as well. So the running costs are much lower than if you're heating your home with oil or gas or, say, a solid fuel or whatever else it may be. Now, of course, this technology works extremely well in homes that are built today because insulation, as everybody will know, is a, is a buzzword, I suppose, and in the construction industry, insulation levels have improved massively in recent years to what's being built today, to what was being built some years back and the, the, I suppose everybody nowadays that build I would give the same advice once you build it right and face it to get as much of the sun's energy as you can no matter how you heat your home you'll have an energy efficient home but the heat pump the big attraction is that um, as I said for every unit of electricity you buy you get an additional three back three free units of electricity back so um, the running cost on these machines while the initial outlay is much more expensive uh, the payback is very good um, hi Justin, it's Darren here How are you? Um, Good I'm just wondering um, A lot of the time where we talk about um, Environmentally friendly um, products And this like that, and electric vehicles is a prime example There's sometimes question marks around The materials involved And I'm just wondering Can you tell us anything about What, what kind of materials are actually in the heat pump Where the heat pumps are made uh, Produced Their kind of carbon footprint Before they even get to your house Sure, I can tell you some of that. So I suppose air water heat pumps, this technology would have been developed, I suppose, pretty much in Asia initially, so like Japan and um, Korea and countries like that. So a lot of the names we'll already be familiar with for different products, such as Hitachi, Panasonic, Mitsubishi, Samsung, LG. So we all know all these brand names already because we probably have products maybe in our homes already that, uh, that these companies make. So these companies are very much to the fore when it comes to refrigeration so in a lot of countries uh, refrigeration refrigeration is widespread all over the country obviously for cooling so in all of our supermarkets uh, they're using these brand names as uh, for refrigeration for keeping things cold and now with these products coming to the fore for heating and, and there's not new uh, new technology this has been around for a long long time but it's very much to the fore in our country now we're kind of catching on um, and yet we're ahead of a lot of other countries we'd be uh, much further ahead of the UK with this energy I suppose as well so coming from I won't say all of it, but a lot of it, Darren, is coming from that part of the world. Okay, very good, very good. And do you know what, I, I know, for instance, inside a refrigerator, there'd be use of, there'd be use helium, for instance, is one of the gases in there. 
Um, do you have any? What kind of materials? What kind of um, so, so the metals or whatever? Refrigerant gas up to this point would have been refrigerant gas called 410A, and then we've moved to a, a more friendly gas, refrigerant gas called R32. So that's the current gas that's being used now. It's more efficient and seemingly more um, friendlier to the environment. And that's been brought in. The older gases have to be phased out and made obsolete, and moving to this gas. And I assume as as we go forward, then again that refrigerant gases will improve yet again as well as technologies get better. Brilliant. That's brilliant to hear. Um, yeah, so so I, I was just wondering then, so the, the efficiency is obviously much, much better. Um, in terms of wattage, obviously now, you, you're, let's say hypothetically, I get, I get my heat pump. Um, I'm switching from a solid uh, fuel uh, heating in my home. What kind of, do you have on, uh, just a rough, um, percentage on a domestic house, what kind of savings you might be looking at? Okay, so a couple of things there, right? So when somebody comes to me, say, Darren, and they're building a new home, that's that's quite easy from my point of view. So I suppose in, in my job every day of the week, I'm speaking to people who are building new homes, renovating, uh, doing extensions, or it could be a builder who's building, say, 50-odd houses, and all different sorts of applications. So when it's a new build, it's, it's actually a simple enough process because we know that to meet the building regulations today, that house has to be built to a certain standard. And pretty much that house is going to be built to either an A, uh, probably an A2 today, right? So we already know when we size that machine that um, the, the, the house is going to be extremely good in terms of holding the heat because that's what it's all about. When we put the energy into the house, we want to make sure the house can hold it. So new homes pretty straightforward. When we get to an older home, like you mentioned, solid fuel. So that house, we'll just say for argument's sake, might be 20 years old and could be what we call an energy poor house. So in other words, it's not holding the heat, right? And a heat pump won't necessarily be the answer for that home, okay? Unless you upgrade your insulation. So it means uh, right. maybe pumping cavity walls. It might mean re-slabbing the inside of the house with the insulated slab. It mean putting um, 200 mil minimum insulation into your attic space because we need to make sure that that house is going to hold the heat because if that house isn't holding the heat and you put a heat pump in there you're going to find that the heat pump will be working really hard to put the heat the energy into the house but according as it's going in it's been lost and you're going to end up unhappy because your running costs will be high at the moment and is it true Justin sorry yeah. to cut in there is it true that the a heat pump brings the air temperature to a slightly lower temperature than, let's say, a traditional oil boiler might? Yes, what you're getting at there is the, the flow temperature coming from, say, an oil or gas boiler would typically be 75 degrees C going into your radiators or, or whatever it is you have to heat your house. So coming from yeah. a heat pump, we're generally putting a flow temperature into a home of 45 degrees. So it's a lower temperature. And mm -hmm. that's perfect, again, when it's a new build. Because with a new build, I say it's really well insulated. The house actually doesn't need a lot of heat at all, you know, even in cold weather, because the house is holding the heat. And you've got occupancy in the house, you've got TVs, cookers, all these electrical appliances giving off heat. So a new built house doesn't actually need a huge amount of energy, uh, whereas an older house that's, say, solid fuel or oil or gas, even if the house is energy poor, it's been heated today, but the higher temperature that's going into it is compensating for the fact that the energy has been lost. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. I live in one of those houses. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so um, do I. <laughs> you could be just, you could open the front door and just be chucking 20 euro notes out there, the heating. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, well, first of all, we'll we'll come back to the old house in a minute because you had an interesting solution that you, you had mentioned earlier. But let's oh, yeah. take, for example, if somebody is building a new house, they've got 
the A2 rating on insulation. Um, what would be the running cost? Well, first of all, what would be the installation cost? And then what would be the sort of reduced running cost, just the electricity to run this heating system per annum? Yeah, sure. So look, if it's a, again, I suppose a couple of examples, wouldn't would be maybe if somebody is uh, going to be buying a house that's been built by a builder, maybe in a, in a scheme of houses, say 20 houses, and we've got a mixture of three beds and four beds in there. Okay, yep. so um, heating system. Uh, Are you out in the house. wind there? It sounds very wild. Sorry, no, no apologies. I just no. Need, I'm actually in work here, so I've snuck away from the oh, counter right. for a few okay. minutes. That's no problem. That's no problem. Um, yeah, continue there. Yeah, so you've, you've, you've got a combination, I suppose, for, for probably for people who are listening. So you've got like uh, one-off, um, maybe new-built house, say typically new-built house today might be somewhere between 2,000 2, and 2,500 square feet. Yeah. Um, and most commonly nowadays would be air-to-water heat pump, underfloor heating on the ground floor, and maybe radiators upstairs. So all that material and installation of same would be coming in anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 euros, okay? Okay. Um all the material to do the same project maybe in a three or four bedroom semi house could be coming in at somewhere between ten to ten to fifteen, depending on again size, square footage, level of insulation, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it's a more expensive outlook at the start, for sure. Okay. Um in terms of running costs, um like typically you could be looking at anything again uh, again from, from customers of mine who are uh, in houses that have been built by builders anything from winter months your bi-monthly electricity bill anything from 180 euros up depending on the size of the property but bearing in mind that's your bi-monthly electricity bill for all electric so not just heating yeah. and hot water but also all your electric within the property and I personally would be paying more than that today for electric with it, and I have oil on top of it again Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Homes that hold the heat, the running cost yeah. is much less. So you're Sorry, looking Orla? at basically if you spend 800 to 1,000 euro a year on oil, you're just saving, not not all of that money, but you're saving a huge amount of, of CO2 emissions. Yeah, running running costs are much less. And, and even though oil is currently cheap, and I have oil myself at home, and oil yeah. is currently cheap to buy today. But the thing we don't, people don't realize is over the next 10 years, you'll spend an additional probably maybe 6,000 euros on oil in carbon taxes that you don't see when you're, when you're purchasing your oil. But if you were to add it up over a 10-year period, and that carbon tax is only going to increase as we go forward. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Um, that's not going For away. people yeah. who might have an anxiety, Justin, about um, sort of a lack of ventilation in these hermetically sealed you know highly insulated houses i presume there is you know ventilation requirements with it within the new building regs yeah yeah absolutely yes that's part of the the building regulations covers ventilation so typically up to now again people will know that they have vents in every room in their house okay so that would be just where the house was built and a hole would be drilled in the wall and you'll have a vent with a grid on the inside and outside to get natural ventilation and that's what would have been done in every room uh, and then again, some people might have that. They might have what we call trickle vents on windows, and they're there to serve the same purpose. So they're not as noticeable, and they're built into the window. So as our houses now become tighter wrapped, I suppose is the term that we use, so they're much more heavily insulated. The property still has to be ventilated, obviously, because ventilation is, is necessary for life. Yeah. Um, and what we're finding is that, I suppose, that the old forms of ventilating a property now aren't enough because the house is so well ventilated. So when we were all growing up, ventilation wasn't an issue because you had drafty doors, drafty windows, 
like the house was very well ventilated, even with doors and windows shut. You know, there was plenty of air getting into the house. So it now used to be blowing down the chimney and be sucked Absolutely. across the room. <laughs> Absolutely. And even like, that's a funny thing, like a chimney. Chimneys are now, I won't say extinct, but you know, being phased out, not just going into houses anymore. And if a chimney has been built in a house now, it's purely for aesthetics. It's no longer for a fireplace because a chimney is a natural vent where hot air gets sucked up the chimney and taken away. So again, in recent times, you've heard about people buying these balloons for their chimneys, putting a cushion, which I wouldn't recommend at all, up a chimney and all those sort of things to block it. So to, to, to block that natural vent because you're losing your heat to keep the heat in the property. So same idea, again, blocking a vent, not to be done at all. R- really bad, bad idea to do because we need ventilation. We need air, fresh air coming into the home. So as we, as we build these houses that are better in, insulated, we now have to look elsewhere. If a hole in the wall is not going to be done anymore, and, and also you have to, people ask me quite regularly, they're spending all this money on insulation and then the builder wants to go along and drill a hole in the side of the wall to, to vent a room. It doesn't make sense um, after spending all that money on insulation. So we're now moving to um, demand control ventilation systems and heat recovery ventilation systems. And these typically, again, are going into all new builds today as well, where we actually suck... Um, fresh air from outside into the premises and circulate that via a pump or a fan around the property and we extract stale moist air from like say bathrooms, kitchens, utility rooms and we extract that out and we, we um, um, expel that air out to outside. So these systems are going in now and that's typically again what's going into all new builds now today to ventilate our properties so as we go forward. Sorry to jump yeah. in, but so for, I'm just thinking two things when I hear you say that. One thing is, surely then we'd be looking at carbon monoxide hopefully being a thing of the past, or am I, am I wrong on that? And also, so if the, you're improving air quality, so people's health actually should benefit from that, not just, the, not just their, their finances, but their actual health. If there's better air quality in their house and there's no carbon monoxide risk, there's kind of benefits in that area too. 100%, absolutely, Gary. So carbon monoxide is formed when um, it, when we have combustion, so we're moving away from that, and you're 100% right, yeah, that'll be gone, because we won't have fires in our homes, you know what I mean? Again, look, stoves are very popular in this country, um, as are open fires, we all like an open fire the winter, in the winter nights and all the rest of it, but yes, when you have an open fire, when you have stove, people again are encouraged to put in a carbon monoxide detector, but if you move away from that, and again, on new homes, can I tell you what's happening today? people very much are going to elect for electric fires. A combination of for heat and for effect. So some people want them maybe to heat the room and other people just want it for effect to have that feeling of coziness with the look of electric fire. And again, the technology in those improve greatly that some of them would trick you. You know, some of them even have little microphones built into them now to give you the sound of a burning log. You know, so <laughs> the technology in those has improved an awful lot. Um, so uh, carbon monoxide, yes, and the other bit was about, about ventilation. Again, 100%, Darren, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I mean, again, I, I know of a, a person who built a house recently, um, and again, fine big house, and again, the hole was cored in the wall as normal to put in the vent so he could ventilate his room, and after a period of time, he found he was getting black spots in the corner of the, the ceiling and the wall, right. and uh, why is that there? Like, it is a new home, really yeah. well insulated. And the, the the answer to the question was he actually didn't have enough ventilation. His house was so well ventilated, right. sorry, so well insulated, apologies, um, that one hole, if you like, that was cored through the wall or drilled through the wall to ventilate that room wasn't actually enough. He didn't have enough ventilation in that room. And when you have 
black mould, if you like, or black spots on, on the corner where, where normally where, say, the ceiling and the, and the wall will meet. That's a sign of poor ventilation. Okay. Can I very quickly, this is fascinating, we're running out of time. I just had two very quick questions. The first, and they're probably long answers, the first was about grants, because I know that there's grants available, and the second would be about planning permission. Do I need planning permission if I want to retrofit my home with a with a heat pump? Uh, for the second question is simple answer anyway, no. Okay, so oh, unless maybe you're in a protected building and uh, if there was reason there, maybe where, but, but no would be would be pretty much the answer I would say, Darren, in that situation. Um, and the only reason I say no if it was a protected building, I'm not saying it's not that it couldn't be done, but if it was, say, going to impact on the, say, the front or the front facade of the building or something like that or facing the road, uh, there might be issues there. But in, in terms of an existing building that's not protected, there should be no issue whatsoever. Um, and uh, yeah, so look, and it was an old building that was protected. It might just be a matter uh, of making inquiry regarding that, but typically a heat pump would not have require uh, time permission to go in. Uh, second and question, very yes, quickly, just grant. the grants are grant. Where would we go if we were looking for a grant? Okay, uh, so if you're building a new build, there's no grant. Okay, because it is compulsory, I suppose, to build today to an A2 standard. And to get to an A2 standard when it comes to the heating system, it's quite difficult to get to that standard using a, a device that's going to burn a fossil fuel, so oil, gas, solid fuel, okay? So the, it, it's now steered in such a way that in order to get to A2, you really have to kind of go towards this technology. And that's what's happening, okay? And in fairness, okay. it's going in, it's working really well, and people are very happy with the results, okay? So. Okay. Is there a grant for retrofit? Yes, is the answer to that. So that's through the SEAI, Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. There's a grant of three and a half thousand euros towards retrofitting one of these machines into your home. Now, that would sound great because substantial bit of money. But as I said to you, your home, depending on the age of it and the level of insulation and everything else, may not be suitable today for this technology. And in order to get it to a stage where it is suitable might mean a larger investment in terms of insulation and everything else to get it where it would need to get to that it can hold that heat and bear in mind i said earlier that you're working off a lower flow temperature into the home than you are maybe today if you have oil we're now reducing sure. the temperature that we're putting into the home so we need to be sure that it's going to be able to heat heat that house and that's a question i get asked every day of the week Okay. Justin Ryan, thank you so much. That's Justin Ryan from Morris's Building Providers in Waterford. I think you, if you have any questions for him, the website is excellent and you can contact him at Morris's Building Providers in Waterford. It's been a pleasure. Um, coming up after the break, we have Claire McDonough from Goran House and we are going to find about, out about all the very interesting things she has in her house and the history of her local area. So join us then. Call us on 056 We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. Take a parachute, and jump. You're listening to Orla Kelly and Des Doyle on The Big Jump. Hello and welcome back to The Big Jump. Uh, we are joined on the phone by Claire McDonough from Goran House. Claire, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, Thank Claire. you very much for having me. Orla here. Um, Hi, Orla. I've how are Claire, you? I've, I actually had the pleasure of doing 
the tour and uh, Darren was away out of the county he's in Tipperary but he's hoping to do it but um, it is the most fascinating house full of every last thing that anyone in Ireland ever had growing up from the Barry's <laughs> From the Barry's Tea to my Rally 18 bike, and you've got your own pub in the house and everything. So yes. what presented you to start collecting all this stuff? Um, well, it was actually my Aunt Vera's fault. She took me to a car boot sale for the very first time in my life when I went to England in 1994, and I didn't stop collecting since. <laughs> I don't it's, love very, car boot it's, very, it's very addictive, isn't it? The car boot sales. Oh, it is, it is, it is. Um, the only thing is, I do find that car boot sales are not the same as they would have been, say, 20 years ago. Um, yeah, I agree with you. The quality isn't there. No, because it's it's all gone. <laughs> well, it's not. It's been gone now. It's gone. <laughs> so maybe start off describing the actual, because for, for anybody who wants to find out what you're doing you're put stuff up on instagram a lot just under goran yes. house and you tell great stories about the history of goran and the house itself so what kind of date is the house or how long are you there well we moved here in 1973 um originally the house was actually built in 1630 as a wedding present for a local couple which are actually buried in saint mary's they have a lovely tomb um and then it was the family moved in, there was the Baileys, and they were here for about 100 years. And then after that, it was Mrs. Prim. And then eventually, a gentleman by the name of Edward Maud moved in in the early, probably early, late 1840s. And he was the Justice of the Peace. And the front room of Gorn House was actually the Petty Sessions, which was like urinating in public and things like that. But across the road was the courthouse, which is the almshouse. Um, he was here up until 1900 and then Richard White arrived here with his family he was a land agent um, which Edward Maud was as well he was a land agent they normally would have been the rent collectors for the for the local uh, English landlords and then the house was where Captain Quinn lived he lived here from 1930s up until 1960 Captain Quinn actually went out to fight in the Spanish Civil War um, he was also, oh, there's lots of history attached to uh, Corey Quinn, originally from Greg the Manor. He moved back to Greg the Manor in the 60s, and in 1973, myself and we arrived here in Warren. <laughs> but the house has been knocked down and rebuilt and changed, and it's added, and there's all different periods of the house. The front of the house and the middle part are 1600s. Then there's an extension added in the 1700s, then the annex in the 1800s, and then uh, a landing at the back of the house in the 1900s. And it's, it's so fascinating. Sorry. Well, when you, sorry, Claire. When you mentioned there the Maud and the White and the Quinn, who were all land agents and would have collected rent, there's an yes. amazing room in the house that's kind of like a very big vault. So was there a lot of money collected? How, how far did the lands go? Well, with uh, when Maud was here, he would have been the land agent also for Lord Clifton, Henry Agar. I think he was the third Viscount Clifton. Um, he would have been the rent collector for about thirty-five thousand acres, I think. And when That's White a huge arrived, huge amount of land. Did all the t 
tenants yes. have to go to Gorn oh, House? They would actually they travel to Gorn maybe once or twice a year and to sign their rent agreements or their lease and pay their rent. Um, they ha- would have come as far as Enniscorty, New Ross, um, and close as well, like Greg the Man of Gorsbridge, that kind of Carlo, bits of Carlo, Kilkenny, and Wexford. It does um, seem wrong one person having all that land and collecting all the rent from it and people having to walk. It must have taken them like half a day or a day to get there to pay their rent. Well, in the 18... After, when we... Gordon actually got its train station in 1853 and we actually would have had jaunting cars from the train station to the village. Um, travel wasn't really that restricted if you, you know where you were going, but the train system was very good in the 1850... Well, the Victorian period in Ireland. It's connected an awful lot of small places. Claire, it's Darren here. I just have a, a question about then the the land. So it's a huge amount of land around Goran, and I would have thought that the McMurray would was that right up to the border of Boris House in the McMurrays then? Um, I'm not really. Yes, I'm pr- probably, but I wouldn't be too sure. Right. But it was only when there wasn't a Clifton to leave. Well, the the, the last Clifton was a female, and she married uh, Lord Annerley. And it was then Annalee took over Clifton's estate, and I think it was up to about 60,000 acres then. And wow. it was Richard's, yes, and Richard Weiss then was the rent collector. Um, in the house here, part of the tour, we have a vault that was added in, eight, well, the lock is 1847. And in that vault, there's a plinth where the safe would have stood, and obviously all the money that was collected was put into the safe. And on the shelves then probably would have been maybe the court documents from across the road. As I said, Edward Maud was the Justice of the Beast. Um, and also rent agreements and parchments would not have been fantastic to smell. Okay. <laughs> and can I just can I just take it back? Because we're, we're up a little, we're, we're a bit further ahead of it now than I, and I didn't get to ask it earlier. Um, you, you said the house was built in 1630. 1630. And then Cromwell would have arrived, because I know Cromwell, there was a siege of Goran, wasn't there? Yes, he actually camped and his men outside probably across the road from the gates of the race course. It was actually quite a good view of Gorn from there. And he only took Ballyshawn because nobody put up any fight and he took himself up to the hill up to the castle. Um, yes, he did. And when he bombarded the castle, after they did give up and the name has escaped me, the name of the captain at the council. Colonel Hammond, oh, I think it was, wasn't it? That is it. Lovely. Thank you, Colonel Hammond. <laughs> he, he was, was related, I believe. Yes, he was actually uh, Cromwell's first cousin. Yeah. Well, yes, he did. And he executed all the officers and let the men go. And he also executed the local priest that was found in the castle at the time. He actually wrote a letter to Parliament to say that Gorham Castle was actually well stocked with food and his men were very <laughs> very well fed. Really? Yes, That's he did. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, do you have do you have a, have you seen a copy of that letter or do you have a Yes, I do. I have a copy of that letter. Really? I'd love to see that. I'm really looking forward to my my trip to Gorham now, now to see it. <laughs> Well, Darren, um, I'm glad you're there to provide those very accurate historic details <laughs> that I would have no idea of. So I'll leave you off, yeah? Um, oh, no, no, nothing more. I was, just, I was just trying to read up on the history of Goran today and I, I came across this and I thought it'd be very interesting. Um, that this, you know, Cromwell, obviously, a big part of it, but it, also that the, the butlers were a p- big part of Goran, weren't they? Yes, they were, because, um, well... 
if you look at the history of Gorn, it goes back nearly 2,000 years. Um, but even before the Normans were here in Gorn, there was a castle. Um, when the Normans arrived, they were the ones that built the stone castle. But there was actually a castle here in Gorn beforehand. There is so much history I could talk for hours. <laughs> Speaking of, this is the whole point, Claire, that is so fascinating. And I have been telling people to travel from far and wide to go out and visit you. <laughs> Thank so you very much. You've, you've been in the house and you tell this fascinating history of the house, but it's told in a really accessible way, like storytelling. And you have a great knack for that, even though you might admit Thank you. it. <laughs> Thank when, you. Thank when you. When did you decide to open the house to the public? Well, I guess... Well, I suppose a couple of years ago we did an exhibition for Heritage Week and it was on the local men who had died in the First World War. I believe there were 17 of them. It actually started because one of the dead from the First World War was Aubrey Cecil White. He was the son of Richard White who lived here in Gorn House. Yeah. Um, he died on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, he was only 20 years old. And it just kind of piqued my interest, and, and, and then we just decided, well, look, Bourne hasn't... Bourne has nearly, as I said, 2,000 years of history, and there's never any emphasis on it. It's like as if nobody knows Bourne exists other than for the fact that you drive through it if you're going to Greg the Manor and other places. Why can't we get people to stop? And but, Claire, even before... I mean, I've been living here now for 25 years... And I had yes. no idea of any of that history. And, you know, it's just fascinating. And the fact that it was so strategic and, and such an important thing. And it's just it's just interesting that you're the people and the house have become this great magnet for all that history. Well, it's, it's kind of my twin brother's fault. Um, when he was in primary school, in Gorn National School, he had to do a project on the history of Gorn. So he went, mum asked him, Mary Morn, if um, he could go down there. And he's in his 40s now, and he still doesn't know everything he needs to know about Gorn. He, Mary Morn was an absolute encyclopedia of, of even folklore and, and stories about Gorn. And sadly, she passed away uh, a few years ago, as did Imelda Kyo. There was another lady. She was a teacher. She taught me this math. <laughs> she was an absolute mine of information as well. But the people are going, and the information's going with them, And I think that's why that's important that you're providing this connection, Claire, that you've heard those stories, and now you're passing them on to... Well, it prompts people's memories. When they come in yep. here, they see something that they remember from their childhood, and then they tell me a story. And I think it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's those stories will be gone. They will be. And they're, well, they're beautiful personal touches as well. So apart from all the wonderful packaging and the bar and the beautiful furniture, and I have to say your own lovely Mary Quant dress on the, dra on the day was oh. very <laughs> striking. But you're, you. there are beautiful fashion drawings that your mother would have done and a kind of room that's almost an homage to her. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, it is. It, it's a kind of a, it's almost a shrine to my mum. We moved here in 1973. She was very unconventional for Southern Ireland in 1973. She grew up in North London and worked for Norman Hartnell in the 50s. 
So she kind wow. of seen it all. <laughs> that's so why you. That's why you have that nice Carnaby Carnaby Street look down past Claire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she was just so artistic and so. Oh golly gosh, um, she was. She was just. She she but, passed parts of her on to each and all of us. Um, her love of history, her love of fashion, her love of art. Um, preserving but the, the past. beautiful the beautiful part of fashion sort of drawings that are framed in the house like you yes. you said that she would have done them but she would have had no professional training well she did because she did her apprenticeship um under oh, did she? Uh, norman hartnell yes she did oh that's how oh that would make sense yeah because they're fabulous drawings they're amazing thank you they are they are and they're all signed when long before she was married even she was only in her early 20s <laughs> yeah and all all of the other things in the house it's just it's so like walking back in time but it, it doesn't have the preciousness of a museum it's got that kind of clutter well, that you'd expect in an old Irish farmhouse you well know? it's not really a museum it's kind of like an exhibition of myself and my partner's collection and also then parts of the house trying to absorb all of it together um Ephemera is what they call it, stuff that you buy, you use it and you throw it away. That's what our shop and our pub is designed to prompt people's memories. I remember going to the shop and packing bags for me, ma'am. <laughs> it's lovely. It's wonderful. And it's absolutely wonderful. Um, Claire, can I ask? So, you obviously, we have now this wonderful opportunity, Gorn, is, Gorn House being kind of the centerpiece of your, your trip to Gorn. Um, but it's so close to the motorway, it's so accessible, from pretty, particularly from Dublin and Waterford now. But what else? What else would you recommend people who are don't know the area, but who might might hear about it or might be recommending it to friends? What What else would you recommend people to do in Gorn after they've uh, enjoyed your lovely museum? Or <laughs> well, we actually have a you're... community cafe in Gorn as well that's open from Mondays to Saturdays. It's all home cooked food. Well, it's not really food. It's lovely cakes and creams and yummies. Um, they're open and their cakes are fantastic. They serve coffee as well. There's also Glossary and Goodies, which is a artisan uh, food store. You can get takeaway coffees. They actually do prepare paninis, etc. Um, and unfortunately, we have no pubs open at the moment. Well, I do. Bourne House Pub is open on Sunday. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> that, that could be quite exciting for quite a few people of the area. <laughs> I don't serve alcohol, unfortunately. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> My hopes are dashed. And what Sorry? about your connection with the with the castle or the abbey across the way? Like, I mean, the history of that is is fascinating too, isn't it? Well, as I said, well, Gorn has thousands, well, two thousand years of history. Gorn Castle, as I said, we had a site, had a castle on there before the Normans arrived. There has been a castle now there since. Whether it's the current um, castle, which was actually built in the early eighteen hundreds, um, he tore down the original medieval castle that had a, still had a big hole in the side of it, um, from where Cromwell had bombarded it with his uh, cannons. Um, the current house actually is missing about 50 rooms that was knocked down in the 60s. But the, the building down there is absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful. Um, but unfortunately, it is in private uh, ownership. St. Mary's isn't open to the public this year, unfortunately, um, due to, obviously, the COVID. And, but you can walk in around the grounds. 
Um, it's actually a shame we can't get in right inside, but I'm not sure it is what it is. Um, there's also races. What is there to see on. inside? Just can you give us can you give us an idea of any of the things to see inside the St Mary's? Inside St Mary's, um, yeah. Well, there's. Um, Golly gosh, <laughs> there's the old stone, date from the 3rd, 4th century. I wow. think this is the part where you actually need to talk to my brother because he knows everything about St. Mary's, where I know everything about Gorn House. <laughs> All right. Okay. But a 3rd, 4th century <laughs> home stone is quite quite interesting anyway. And is that kind Indeed. of part of the evidence as to why it's uh, we yes, know that Gorn when, is 2,000 years old? Well, you see, Gorn actually suffered a bit of a neglect roughly at about the 18th century. And in the 19th century, when Henry Agar took over, he actually was quite a benefactor and did a lot of things for the village, built workers' cottages, installed a water supply, He was, and they refurbished the church. Um, but it was then when they found the own stone in the fabric of the building. So they obviously built something and used it. So <laughs> it, was, it was actually used as like another block. Well, yeah, it wouldn't have been uncommon. Um, when there was a, wow. there was a, yeah, it, in the 1850s, well, mid 1800s, even all through the 1800s, um, it wouldn't have been uncommon to take blocks from somewhere else and, and, and say, up the road there and bring it down and make yourself a wall or add an extension. Mm. Or there was used to be a yeah. church at the top of the street was actually the Magdalen Hospital. And it was in the 1850s they actually had to take away the rest of the ruins because people in the village were taking the blocks. <laughs> so they took them right. away and planted trees instead. Okay, okay. Um, um, I know, I mean, I know Canis' Cathedral actually has a similar situation where you can actually go and see stones that are from an earlier, you can actually see stones that are part of the earlier um, monastic settlement that was there before the, the, current, yes. the current cathedral was built. Well, that's very interesting. And... Um, the final kind of history thing, if you don't mind, because I and if this is to do with Goran House, was um, Goran House in any way ever threatened during any of the wars of independence, civil war, or um, uh, you know, eighteen ninety two? Because obviously there would have been quite shockingly, a bit of money there. No, well, no, shockingly enough, no. Um, Goran seems to have um, kind of prospered in the eighteen hundreds and even into the early nineteen hundreds. Gorn actually prospered fairly well, I'd say, until... Well, you see, Gorn's always had a problem being too close to Kilkenny. <laughs> so, <All right. laughs> yeah, we never really had a big, thriving business because it was just so easy to hop on the train and go into town. Um, as I said, Henry Agar was quite a benefactor to the village, so um, he even... Um, started a fund to raise money. Everybody in the village kind of made a small contribution towards it and they built a, a dispensary and provided a doctor. Okay. Um, those kind of things. Um, so, but Gorn thrived all through that time and I think it was probably, oh sure, look, when we even moved here in 73, there was four shops, two petrol stations, three pubs, four pubs, three mm. pubs, four pubs. Anyway, and all of a sudden it's like now here we are in 2020 and Horn has a shop with the post office in it now and also the petrol station and a butcher's chemist's. Um, Horn needs to, it needs a bit of, it needs people to come into Horn and spend money here yeah. and trying to restart the economy. Um, people tend to pass through Horn and never stop. Yeah. 
Well, hopefully your your wonderful, wonderful Gorn House will be part of that uh, uh, renaissance in Gorn, if you will. Um, well, hopefully. Claire McDonough from Gorn House, thank you thank so you. much for joining us on The Big Jump today. Uh, we're going and to our second news, uh, second ad break now, and afterwards, um, Orla and I will be chatting about this week's news. Let's talk to you then. Streaming live on crkc.ie. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. You're listening to The Big Jump with Orla Kelly and Des Doyle. When everyone else is gone. Welcome back to The Big Jump with me, Darren Proud, and Orla Kelly. Um, that was really, really interesting. Both our guests, great, great, great contributions. And I should just mention, anybody who is interested in um, checking out Gorn House, um, they have an excellent Instagram page that's well well worth, um, well worth uh, following. Um, so the news this week, um, one thing that really caught my eye, and we started with, unfortunately, it was a bit of a negative news story about SUVs, but a really positive news story that caught my eye this week was the release of four white-tailed eagles uh, on Loch Derg in, uh, in Tipperary, I think, um, this week. Um, as part of a breeding program, they come from Norway, and their local community was very involved because obviously they don't just arrive from Norway and Norway and they're released that day. I believe like local farmers and local local residents were very involved in um, keeping them on their land and building the the housing for them and everything be- to allow them to settle and acclimatize before they were released. Um, and I b- believe on YouTube you'll see you can see their release their them being released. It's a really really positive thing to see any uh, wildlife like that and improving our biodiversity don't you think Orla? Yeah it, well that's great to hear and I think we've done well in the past with the the introduction of eagles and it's very interesting because we had Liam Lysett in the show previously and we were talking about the um, the the buzzards that are no no not the buzzards the the uh, hawks the, yeah, that are coming back as well. And um, yeah. you just see a lot of them now, about 10 or 12 pairs, even in this local area. And you see, I just saw one of their young today. So um, it does seem to be a really, really good biodiversity story, which is good based on the downer that I did at the beginning of the show with the <laughs> SUVs. So it's, it's good to hear all the good stuff. And I think possibly the fact that maybe the air is cleaner because of lockdown might be helping, you know, with all of this. We can only hope. We can only hope. It's certainly, the insect life is, seems just, maybe it's anecdotal, but it just seems much stronger this year compared to the part previous, certainly the previous 10 years that I can, I can know. Yeah, I think, I, I think there, um, are, there, are, there are facts, yeah. Have you any other news? Um, uh, no, um, her, you know, again, just it reminded me, Claire McDonough talking about we have Heritage Week next week. I think starting, actually it might be starting today or maybe it's tomorrow. Um, so that'd be quite exciting to be looking out. I know the Kilkenny Museum, um, the excellent Kilkenny Museum, is is open again. I, you might have to book, but just look at again. They have a great website. Um, and and that news- is the best. That is the best tour. I just send everyone in there because yeah, I mean, fantastic. Claire gave a great insight into the history of Gorn and Kilkenny. But the medieval history of Kilkenny and the way they tell it in the medieval Mile Museum is is just absolutely fantastic. So um, the other quick things to mention are just as a, a feedback um, um, questionnaire on the one the new one way system in Kilkenny. So if you want to fill that in, go onto the PPN site 
in Kilkenny County Council. And um, next week, we've got a very interesting guest. We have Emeritus Professor John Sweeney, whom I'm sure lots of people will have heard of on the airwaves because he is a real expert in that area. So he's going to be talking about climate attribution and the sort of heat wave that has been happening in in Europe this you know this year and how that is directly related to climate change and apart from that we just want to say thank you so much to Justin Ryan from Morris's Builder Providers Claire McDonough Goran House thanks to Morris O'Connor for producing today and Darren Proud as always was presenting with myself Orla Kelly coming up next is Morris O'Connor with Kilkenny today we are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM 